Nine Squid is a small game development company. Our first game was Abzu. As an indie developer, you have to find a niche, something that people aren't doing. You try to make games that are atmospheric and take you somewhere that's really immersive and beautiful, but gives you something to think about at the end. Pathless is an adventure game. It's about the relationship between a hunter and an eagle as they explore a forest full of cursed beasts. For us, it's a game that extends our philosophy from Abzu forward, but incorporates more traditional gameplay elements. The Pathless has a focus on creating accessible controls. The controls are not a barrier for expressing yourself the way you want to as that character in the game. So in Abzu, it meant you could swim around freely, you could flip and turn upside down, and you never felt like you couldn't perform the behaviors you wanted to perform. And in Pathless, it's a similar thing, except the character now, instead of being a diver, the character's an archer. And the hunter doesn't have to think about Amy because she's an expert. So we don't want the player to have to think about Amy because we want them to feel like an expert. We want them to think about what are they shooting at and why are they shooting it. When we started Giant Squid, it was just me sitting in a room full of desks and I had to figure out how to get a game up and running by myself. And I'm a visual person. I know a little bit of math, but I'm not a programmer. Our focus is on visuals as a first step to get that sense of atmosphere established very quickly. And doing that in Unreal Engine was straightforward. One of the things that makes Unreal really cool is that you can rapidly prototype. So you can use blueprints uh, to, to get something working quickly without having to dig into the nitty gritty of how it's implemented. And then beyond that, you can take those prototypes and then you can make native code. And because Unreal provides full access to the source code, you can really easily make it functional and performant and fast. As a studio, Giant Squid tends to do a lot of heavy shader development. We do a lot of custom shaders and crazy shader math. And the shader scripting tool in Unreal is perfect for that because it takes some of that burden off of the programmers and the tech art people and not have to write them all from first principles. Every single task that we think about, we have to think, is this going to be worth the cost of creating it? What tools do we use? What engine do we use? These are all things that in a small indie studio really have to think about a lot because if you make the wrong choice, you might be done. Unreal Engine has been a great choice for us because it allows us to focus on developing our game rather than spending a lot of time trying to build an engine to make the game. Achieving the emotional connection with the characters or with other players or with the world is something that's very difficult to do and it's difficult to articulate how to do it. One of the most surprising and rewarding elements of creating Abzu was that we received a lot of fan mail telling us that this game had given them an experience that moved them in a way that they weren't expecting. When the Pathless ships, we hope that we'll create another experience that brings that quality to play. We tried to turn some of the um, things you see in a lot of other games on their head, um, take the things that made you remember that you're in a game out and focus on um, creating an atmosphere and letting you really be there um, and uh, focusing on that exploration. That was, a, that was the uh, thesis of the game for sure. 
Well, it's it's when it comes to the giant the games you make at Giant Squid, it's it's definitely not something that's um, that's new because I felt like Abzu had the same feel, and I and I wanted I want to get into to that in particular, but more more importantly, what were your influences growing up? What what has inspired you to make games like this? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's something that I can't uh, escape. But whatever I make has this feel to it and I, I hear that a lot you know I have um, I worked on Journey and Flower before and, and uh, people can feel the connection between these games um, which is interesting because it kind of happens accidentally you look back and realize yeah that was uh, there's those are the connections uh, <laughs> but um, yeah growing up you know um, I uh, was lucky enough to um, uh, travel around the world with my family. Uh, got to go to Europe and Mexico. Uh, went to India and saw a lot of museums and ancient ruins. My parents are artists, um, so they always wanted to check out all the museums wherever we went. Um, and so I was always looking at you know, old paintings and suits of armor. And <laughs> um, I, uh, I love all that stuff. I love ancient art. I love um, cave paintings and hieroglyphs and that kind of stuff and um, it always felt like it had so much um, you could just feel the history in those uh, objects and uh, you could feel this culture that was lost it was vibrant and it's always just kind of just really fascinating to see those artifacts and imagine the world that they came from and you know that's kind of what we're trying to do in these giant squid games is create this place that evokes that sense that there is another world here you're getting a glimpse of it uh through this artifact of the game and um letting your mind kind of fill in the rest um that's i think there that's one of the uh (laughs) the kind of connections to to my earlier life i think that's fantastic that you embraced going to museums. I know that I, I kind of always resisted it uh, when my family would go to museums, but to, to be into sort of ancient ancient art at an early age, that sounds great. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to make games? No. Um, I just knew that I wanted to make images. I loved to draw. Um, that's what I do. I, uh, my thing is that I can draw with a pencil. And um, I've just been doing that since I was born, basically. <laughs> um, and I went to art school and um, did a lot of figure drawing and life drawing. and um, Didn't really know what I was going to do with these skills. Um, I started teaching myself 3D animation and stuff. Actually, when I was in seventh grade, I uh, got a hack copy of Cinema 4D and uh, learned it. Uh, just read the manual. I was really interested in animation and 3D, but I never really put it together that uh, real-time 3D and and video games and uh, and all of that would connect with my my, uh, drawing would help direct these kind of games. But yeah, I thought I was going to do visual effects. I thought I was going to do movies. And I actually did a couple very small um, like TV ads before I... uh, got a job in the in the game industry so you live in los angeles right 
Yes, I'm in Los Angeles. And did you, have you always lived in Los Angeles? Uh, no, I uh, grew up in Ojai, um, which is a small town a couple hours north of LA. Uh, it's near Ventura, but it's this sleepy little valley that um, is very beautiful and a lot of nature hikes and gorgeous mountains and also uh, a lot of wildfires. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we'd always come down to LA to, um, you know, check out the cool things happening, but it was a very sleepy little town. Uh, yeah. Oh, is beautiful. I've been there and it's, uh, I also live in, in LA and I, I asked about that because it's at the time, I, I would say 20 years ago, LA was the place you needed to be if you wanted to get into the FX industry, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, um, I remember, uh, my dad and I just drove down to LA to check out art schools when I was uh, in high school. And, um, uh, you know, that's why we came here because this is where the industry was. This is where visual effects was. Um, everybody who was going to art schools in LA was just going right into that industry. Um, and I knew, I knew a whole bunch of people, uh, who did that, um, did motion graphics and all this kind of thing. And it just so happened that, um, uh, like the Sony studios, Naughty Dog studios, and uh, that game company, which was embedded in Sony, were all just on the same block as these other studios that were doing TV ads. And so I just walked over and did an interview one day. Oh, that's really cool. So it wasn't, it was sort of serendipity that you got into the industry. You were, you saw a, a job opening and well, it was in. A weird thing where, um, uh, I was graduating from art school at Otis College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you, as a senior there, you do a senior show and they invite industry people to come check out the portfolios of the students. And it's mostly, you know, um, visual effects people and stuff. But um, Genova Chen, the creative director, founder of that game company, swung by. Um, for my senior show and he saw my stuff and um, they had actually hired a, another Otis grad before and um, uh, you know uh, I, I had already gotten kind of a gig going but I was like you know let's stay in touch and, and eventually um, uh, I ended up working at that game company with him so that kind of connection formed there but uh, kind of took shape a little later <laughs> Got it. And so you worked on Journey, which I, I admit is one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, and, <laughs> and which, and were you were the art director, right? That is correct. Yes. Wow. That that was. I mean, Journey had such a, to me at least, a unique style. Uh, was was there anything in particular outside of your sort of your childhood travels that inspired you for the art on Journey? You know, the art from Journey was. Um, this thing that came, it was very difficult to discover and to um, come to because that game, um, we worked on it for about three years and we started with almost nothing. We had just this idea that we wanted to make a multiplayer game where you were going to befriend people instead of, uh, you know, competing with them or shooting them with guns and, <laughs> and there wasn't really much beyond that and my task was 
you know, what does that look like? And um, the characters and everything um, took a lot of discovery, a lot of um, uh, redoing to and refining to uh, come upon. And um, yeah, we uh, uh, kind of listened to players and I kind of tried to make the art in the game reflect what I was drawing and painting um, because we just knew that we couldn't make something that was trying to be photoreal or uh, like we just didn't have these kind of resources. A lot of it was defined by the constraints that we had um, and trying to make something that could be timeless, that could last within those constraints. Uh, uh, that was kind of the challenge uh, for that project. Well, congratulations on delivering something that really was stunning and and uh, was well recognized by the industry for breaking new ground. Thank you. Yeah, it was um, crazy, you know, like you never expect to have that kind of reaction to it, but um, uh, sometimes, it, you know, you can never predict it. Uh, <laughs> that game just it really resonated with people and it, it's just really, really awesome to, to have seen that happen. Yeah. So as you were, well, maybe I'll, I'll ask this independent of that game company. Do you remember the moment that you started, you decided to start giant squid? You know, after I finished journey, um, everybody on the team kind of dispersed that, uh, they went their separate ways. Um, and I had this um, kind of choice what I wanted to do next. I was in this position where I could go work at another studio or I could do my own thing. And uh, I had this idea for a short film that I wanted to try making. And um, it was going to be this underwater <laughs> uh, thing about a diver, you know, going to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, because I um, had these experiences as a scuba diver um, that were inspiring me to make this. And um, I was I did this little uh, trailer for it and a little animated short. Like, okay, this is, you know, the, the concept piece. And I started showing it to some people I knew and they all said, this is a video game, you gotta make this a game. <laughs> and um, I was like, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Uh, so, um, and eventually, uh, that was kind of uh, the impetus for starting the studio to make that game um, and to see if we could do it. And the uh, the the launch trailer for Abzu was uh, basically a, a, a uh, amped up version of that initial hmm. trailer that I had made. That was a beautiful. I remember that launch trailer. I remember it was uh, unveiled at a at uh, E3 during a press conference, wasn't it? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, that was quite a break for us. Uh, is you know, as a kind of startup with no history or anything, to be able to get on the stage uh, for a Sony press conference at E3, that was you know, pretty much unheard of. <laughs> so we we really lucked out. Well, at that point, were you guys already in production or was it early on in creating apps? Early on, um, it was a lot earlier than we had planned to reveal it. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had barely started making 
we had the character controls, you know, just in a prototype phase, and like, it was it was very much just a vision and a couple people thinking about it still. So, <laughs> okay, so here's a crazy question: How much earlier uh, than the press conference had you come up with the name for Giant Squid? Oh, um, well, the uh, the name uh, that came out. Uh, earlier a lot earlier we, a lot earlier okay yeah yeah we had discovered um the, the we knew the idea of the game was going to be this underwater um thing it was supposed to be mysterious and um and so you know what was an underwater mysterious thing that evoked that sense for the company you know now we're the squids <laughs> got it i only asked that just selfishly because when i was uh, when we were early on at Insomniac, uh, we were at Extreme Software, X-T-R-E-M-E, and uh -huh. we were working on our first game, Disruptor, and we realized that we were going to be, we had an opportunity to show it at, I think it was the second E3 uh, way back, and we had to change our name because another company actually was using Extreme and had dibs on it. So we had a couple weeks to figure out what our name was. So. Uh, Whoa! You, you guys sound like a, you were a lot more organized than we were. Yeah, we were thinking about it, and then after we kind of said, "Okay, this is going to be it," then we I realized like, "Oh my God!" There's like a bunch of indie games with the word "giant" in their name. There's like <laughs> uh, Super Giant and Giant Sparrow, and oh, there's also like right. Giant Bomb. And, like, there's like so many giant things. Oh no! But <laughs> it's too late. That's funny. Well, it fits. I mean, Giant Squid's yeah. a great name. I, I actually didn't even think about Super Giant or or any of the others. I just Giant Squid seems to. Work. And that's just me being subjective, but uh, yeah, it's fun. So now, so having started Giant Squid and, and gotten gotten started on Abzu, uh, you 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 had made the transition from being an art director to now a creative director and head of your own studio. What was what was that transition like for you? It was a big jump, and I didn't really know quite what that meant you know i i had worked on flower as an art director but it was really my first game gig and i learned a lot there and then uh worked on journey all the way through from start to finish and um as an art director but um it was a small team over at that game company and everybody was doing a lot of things and i was doing a lot more than just art direction i was a level designer I was an environment artist, animator, concept artist, and narrative designer. <laughs> I mean, I did all of that stuff. Um, and so all of that experience kind of handling a lot of things uh, really helped. But, you know, I hadn't managed a company. I had, uh, you know, directed programmers and um, hiring and all these kinds of things. and. You know, we, we learned a lot uh, in that process, and um, the, the the main thing that happened was that uh, it took us a long time to find the right people uh, to join the team, and so that kind of delayed our ramp up, and the whole thing got a little squished at the end, a little bit crazy, and you know, the, the scope of the game shifted and changed, and um, we realized that I was kind of a bottleneck. You know, I I loved to do all of those things that I had done on Journey, but now there was all these people who needed more from me. They needed more direction, and they needed, in addition to just needing animation files or 
the level to be done so they could prototype whatever, you know, they, they also needed um, uh, design docs and, and, and all this kind of thing. And so after we shipped Abzu, we had this conversation, which was like, okay, well, that was really hard, you know, why? And uh, how can we make it so that you're less of a bottleneck and, uh, and what roles should we uh, hire and how can we change up the team's makeup to um, to address that, that core issue <laughs> um, so and and that's kind of the uh, the main thing that we did that allowed us to kind of make a bigger game for the pathless I think I, if it makes you feel any better I ran into the exact same problem uh, I was a bottleneck as a creative director and uh, and trying to run the company at the same time and you you addressed it I think probably five games before I did um, so your team was probably <laughs> much better off as a result uh, but that's a it's a great lesson I think for any anybody who starts a company who is taking on a key creative role right it's there's so many other things that you don't realize you have to do when you're running a company and responsible for the well-being of all the, all the team members Yes, you know, and because what you, what I realized at least was that it was so hard to find these people who are, and they are so valuable. These team members, uh, they're the real uh, uh, value of the company, and you got to take care of them, like you say, and you have to uh, make sure that they they're happy and fulfilled and want to keep working with you, so that you don't have to keep starting over from zero every time, and. Um, uh, that is a trick to pull off, you know, and then you also have to, I'm sure you've uh, experienced this as well, much many more times than me, but once the project's over, you better get something else going, you know, because right. uh, you got to keep the, keep the people on board. Uh, it's a trick. It's a great, it's a great point for, again, for anybody who is thinking about getting into business. That is, we are in this, uh, wouldn't say it's a flywheel but we are constantly having to look for the next thing in this industry unless you're working on a on a multiplayer game that has a really established base of players it's a it's a challenge and it's but it's the responsibility of the person who's in charge of the studio to make sure everybody has a job right after the the game ships yes um, and and there's a whole bunch of ways that you can achieve that you know lots of studios start to make multiple games at the same time or bring in multiple creative directors to kind of uh, again address the bottleneck you know of just having one guy with a vision having to come up with uh, the, uh, the golden idea that's going to keep everything going you sure. know because that's a that's a risky thing you know so far that's how we've been operating and it's it's tricky to break out of that you know but um, it takes a lot of trust in your team and and uh, it takes, you know, a big shift. You can't make those shifts all the time, especially mid-production. So right. it's, a, it's a challenge. Well, you mentioned vision. So did you have a specific vision for your culture when you started the company? Yeah, you know, I didn't really think about a vision for it in, in that way, but it really kind of was a key element because when I was working at that game company, um, the culture there on, on at uh, at that time, at least, was very difficult. It was uh, it was a very um, there's a lot of angry people, a lot of arguing and yelling, and 
emotion in that uh, space, and it was uh, it was trying. And you know, everyone was trying to make this brilliant thing, but they all had their own <laughs> kind of idea of what it should be. And um, I wanted to make a th place where it was just really fun and collaborative. And you know, obviously, there's going to be tough questions and you got to say no and you got to critique and you got to you know whittle ideas down um, but you but you could do it in a way that's positive and and that's why we really took our time um, hiring is was to uh, make sure that everybody was on the same page culture fit that everybody was a good could be friends with each other and um, so the vision of what that culture was started out as this very simple thing, you know, like, let's just be friends. And then it evolved with the personalities that we brought on. And now there is this very kind of giant squid uh, culture that exists that's, that is that, you know, it, it, we've really focused on that and, and everybody is... Uh, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, <laughs> at least, um, okay, you know, it, they uh, they're having fun while they work on these games. Uh, so, I, so I'm very proud of that aspect of the company. That's really commendable. Uh, are there specific things that you do to uh, manage conflicts in a way that feels uh, appropriate for your culture? Because guarantee know, they're conflicts, right? I mean, you guys, I'm sure you oh, have yeah. some disagreements on. on oh, that. absolutely, all the time. You know, like I, my thing is, you know, I'm a very opinionated guy. Like that's kind of my job is to be able to say yes to this and no to that. You know, <laughs> um, so like that just comes with the uh, the space of the the work is to have these conflicts that have to be resolved, and it's tricky because it's different for everybody you know, on the team and you have to really listen to everybody. And this is something that I've been learning even over the course of the development of the pathless just recently, you know, like we have had to deal with, um, the different issues that arise with different people in different ways. And, um, it just helps to listen. You have to, you have to listen and you have to also, um, you know, have a way to test the game that's, uh, empirical and, and uh, not emotional and everybody that's the kind of thing that actually got us through on journey even uh, when things were difficult it was like okay everybody can't agree on what the direction here is let's just put in a play test and see how players react and everybody can understand that if they don't get it then it's not working you know so you kind of have this uh final uh, uh tool mm -hmm. to get through the toughest uh disagreements but uh, but it really helps to to listen and check in with everybody and and uh, and I wasn't a real big fan of like one on ones and the kind of corporate idea of like uh, managing managing people. Uh, but uh, we've started doing one on ones recently, you know, and and a lot of times I actually have um, uh, other people help me do them because. And then I talk to them about how it went uh, because I think that some people can be more open if they're not talking directly to the boss. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's figuring out the best way for people to be able to express what they're going through because you don't want to be surprised. You know. Uh, 
In a company of your size, do you have bandwidth to have people be devoted to, say, managing people exclusively? Or do you do, are, do you have, for example, leads who are creating assets, but also managing folks? Or, or yeah, is that all on you? Uh, it's a, it's a definite uh, thing that we've tried different arrangements, you know, of different structures. And, you know, when you're when you're really small, everybody is aware of what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And depending on how tight your culture is, you can keep that up until a certain point. And even if, you're, if your culture is fantastic, everybody's on the same page, at a certain number of people, you just can't keep it all in your head. Right. So you have to now have some kind of hierarchy and some kind of tracking and all this kind of thing. And, um, and what we've kind of realized um, happened uh, during the development of Pathless, which was, you know, a much bigger game than Abzu, was that I just couldn't handle uh, keeping, like, directing every element of the game. And um, uh, I would have to kind of delegate that direction a bit to some of my leads. And we kind of started to build this um, structure. And so now we've kind of uh, had that same conversation we had at the end of Abzu, you know, what what's the uh, changes that we need to make to make our lives easier next time? And uh, we've uh, kind of uh, decided to, um, that the next step of unbottlenecking the team against me is to delegate more of that direction. And, you know, luckily I've found these kind of great devs who I can trust and, um, uh, to be able to do that and so I just am able to say okay the prototype that we want to make is going to go for this and I'll write up a design doc and I'll write notes and draw concept art and all this kind of thing and then they'll be able to help get a version of that to a certain state while I'm working on another part of the game and I'll check in on it do critiques and, and all that kind of thing so that's kind of our um, approach this time but yeah it's definitely kind of going in this direction of requiring more trust from me in the in the team itself mm -hmm. yeah well I, I want to reference where we are in terms of uh, time uh, we since we are still in the middle of a pandemic how did did the events of 2020 change how that worked for you yeah you know it's interesting because um we were all working in the shared like a little studio space right and um uh we had a uh a fun time just hanging out together and uh the culture was very much you know about being in the same place and um we had started to hire some remote people um because it was just hard to find people right so we had a person on the other side of the country in a different time zone and and even when we just had hired this one remote person, we had to basically get up to speed on remote work because everybody had to work with them and they, uh, you know, were in a different time zone. So we, we bought everybody headsets and we brought, got cameras and started doing all that video um, conferencing and everything um, before the pandemic. Hmm. Um, and so when the, 
the pandemic hit, the only difference was we were just like, okay, well, everybody take their computer home. That's it. And um, it was weird because it was surprisingly easy to make that shift for us. Um, and at the same time, we were working with Apple, you know, on the art, like we they're publishing the game for iPhones and things. And just seeing how the, they struggled through this, like it was fundamentally different uh, because of their scale. You know, like they just could not pivot that quick. And they were completely out of commission uh, for a good month or two months, or three months before you could really kind of get a hold of somebody over there. Huh. Um, whereas we were just like, okay, we're still working. Like, and, and, uh, you know, it, it was the toughest thing is, was mostly on the morale and just seeing everybody because we were, we enjoyed hanging out together. And so that was the toughest part for us. You know, has it, uh, has the, have the events of the last year changed how you look at work and over the next say five or so years? Has it brought permanent changes for you guys? Yeah, you know, I mean, it it, it definitely um, made us realize that there were a lot of things that we could not have done if we were uh, not able to work this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were shipping the game, you know, you're going through cert and you need somebody and it's this crazy time and hey, you could just call them and you can share the screen and you can get it done. And, you know, um, we, there was a few times when, um, things just really happened fast because you already knew that everybody had a remote setup, like everybody in the industry. Um, my favorite example was, uh, at the very last minute, we brought on, uh, Troy Baker and Laura Bailey to do a voice recording for characters in our game mm-hmm. uh, and right up until the last minute we were like oh my god what are we going to do with the voice acting in this game uh, and I mean it was down to the wire and like over the course of like three days we connected with them made it all happen and transformed the game uh, and that whole process just would not have been as fast so it, for you know the future of the company <laughs> the immediate future is that we're not going to renew our lease, you know, on our space um, because it's not, there's not enough certainty yet to kind of commit to going back. And right now, why are you paying for this big overhead? Um, You know, so at the, at the moment we're just going to be in a remote state indefinitely until we get some certainty. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that's that's great flexibility, and and the, that's a seems like a smart call to me uh, to do that, especially if it's working. I mean, you guys were also able to ship you know, a launch title for the PlayStation Five, which yeah. is incredible. I mean, that's doing that in a pandemic, and I can say that from from personal experience is not easy. And uh, the fact that the Pathless it is a launch title for the PlayStation Five must have also been a cool experience for you. Uh, uh, oh yeah was it cool it was super cool you know it was 
uh, you always hear devs talk about, oh man, if you can be a launch title, that's just, that's so cool. You know, that's the dream. You, you're going to get out there. You, everybody's going to, you know, you're going to be on every list of launch titles forever. People are going to remember your game. You know, it's like this huge ticket and it doesn't roll around every, every time. And so we were able to line it up and, and uh, what a cool experience um, to, to be a part of, you know, and, um, and uh, the PlayStation 5 is a really neat piece of hardware. It really, it really elevated the game in a lot of ways. It did some, we were able to use, use it to, to make the game really run nice. Um, oh yeah, I mean it's it is so smooth. I mean, it's your you know, your key mechanic, the sliding and shooting is really feels good at yeah. at the frame rate you have it running, and yeah. uh, and of course the game looks gorgeous too. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and you know like you said it it was a challenge and. Um, and but you know once you kind of do that during a pandemic you kind of realize yeah we could probably do anything <laughs> uh so it was uh you know every challenge is different you know we've never started a new project or prototype to you know we've, we've finished one and, and the difference is that when you're at the, the tail end of a project everything is just a list it's like okay go through the bug list and fix everything everybody knows exactly what to do everything is very highly scheduled so it is definitely different than, you know, the beginning and how do you do that remotely. But being able to do that has given us a lot of confidence. Well, speaking of the beginning of the Pathless, and by the way, I didn't ever congratulate you on the Pathless. Uh, it's, again, congratulations on, on the game. And I was wondering about how you made the decision after Abzu to start a new IP. And I only ask this because sequels, right? Sequels tend to be the sort of most obvious next step once you've spent all of that creative energy creating a new IP, but you guys went for it and uh, took a sort of a, a created a new direction. Yeah. What was, the, it, what was your thought process behind that? Yeah, you know, is um, maybe not the most genius thought process at first, but, <laughs> um, but the uh, the idea was, you know, that we felt like Abzu was a contained experience, that it didn't really make sense for a sequel. Mm -hmm. And the other reason was that um, when we first started designing Abzu, the design was much more like the Pathless. It was going to be an open world and you were going to visit landmarks around this big reef, you know, and there's a kelp forest over here and you can go any which way and, and eventually you're trying to get down to the bottom of the ocean you know that was kind of the 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 structure but what we realized was that as we prototyped it the underwater environment made it hard to do that for one real important reason which is that you can't really see far <laughs> underwater yeah um and so we we after the game shipped we were like well we ended up making a game that worked for the story we wanted to tell and the space that we wanted to inhabit and the atmosphere that we wanted to create. And the structure was dictated by that. And then we were like, well, what if we wanted to, what would the um, atmosphere, what would the environment be that would make it easier to do the structure that we want to make? And um, the answer was, you know, instead of going down, go up to a floating island, you know, this play on this basic instinct of people that you want to get up higher mm -hmm. and you want to see far. So, you know, um, make a character that can fly and 
jump. And, um, you know, all these things kind of fell out from this idea of like, how could we actually make that game and make it intuitive uh, with the kind of metaphor of the art and the, and the atmosphere. Um, so yeah, the, you know, as we uh, continue, the thought of, you know, is it smarter to make a sequel or something in the same universe? It uses the same tools and all that kind of stuff. Like that's something that we still consider and uh, is probably going to be the right choice someday. But at that point, we uh, we felt like um, shifting the IP was going to be the way to let us achieve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, at what point did Annapurna get involved? Very early. Um, after Abzu uh, shipped, uh, well, actually, before Abzu shipped, um, we anticipated this common problem, which is, you know, that, hey, the money runs out and you haven't made enough sales yet uh, to, you know, uh, be in profit and you got to bridge this gap to the next project. And I mean, uh, that was a tough moment for us between the projects. I mean, we, we, uh, we were skating on very thin ice, um, and uh, luckily, uh, I was able to pitch this the Pathless um, while we were in our last phase of development for Abzu, and we showed it around, and uh, Annapurna got it. You know, they they were new, but um, they're being headed up by people that I uh, knew and had uh, uh, from before and uh, trusted, and um, we decided to work together and they helped us uh bridge that gap cool yeah yeah they've done they've done they, they have been such a great supporter of new ip uh groundbreaking ip right the ip yeah. That, that yeah needs to be different it's awesome yeah you know nathan gary the guy who um heads up uh annapurna over there he's got uh an eye for for that you know he can really kind of see uh, the value in a small uh, game, even in its early stages, uh, they, they, it's a very valuable uh, part of the industry to have that. So in making the Pathless during production, what was the biggest challenge for you? Oh, man. Um, there were so many. But <laughs> what was your uh, favorite big challenge? Or maybe maybe your, your least favorite big challenge? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was interesting. When we started the game... I knew that it was going to be this shadowy forest, and I knew that there was going to be archery and this eagle, but we didn't know much more. Um, and uh, it took us a long time to discover the not the moment-to-moment stuff. Um, both on Abzu and Pathless, we pretty immediately got the character movement and control. Uh, we had that shooting, bounding, flying thing very early, um, the moment-to-moment stuff. But what you were doing every 20 minutes was tricky because uh, we knew we were going to have these bosses and we knew we were going to um, uh, go higher and higher up this uh, island. But the landmarks and the puzzles and the kind of spirit vision that lets you see uh, distant um, uh, goals to go and check out came on very late and hmm. uh, and uh, we tried a whole lot of things 
uh, to figure out that one. But uh, it kind of became a signature element of the game that there's no map, that uh, instead you are using uh, the terrain itself to get up high and get on top of some tower or something and look out and um, figure out the mapping in the world. Your navigation is tied to the exploration in a, in a really interesting way that's very different. And it kind of defined the way that you interact with this world and made it different than other open world structured uh, games. So it was a big challenge, but it also became one of the coolest parts of the game. I would agree with that. I mean, that's one of the, the things that helps the game stand apart. Uh, you know, and speaking of of challenges, you go head to head with teams that are almost ten times your size, right? And you mentioned constraints at the beginning of our talk, and it, it's a it's pretty amazing to watch a giant squid embrace those constraints in the game design and the art style that you choose. Uh, what do, do you? sort of actively and enunciate those constraints as you guys are are going into production and say hey you know we only have we have this many people we have this much time let's you know, figure out our scope within those constraints it's interesting because um like you say those constraints really define the design and what we can do but it also is a way to get to an elegant design mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's something that I really strive for is to make it elegant to make it as simple as it can possibly be and still express the full experience and um, I think that there's a, a, a danger when those constraints aren't there that uh, it can become muddied or it can become, there can be extraneous things in the game that that uh, don't really need to be there. And it's like, well, if you don't really need it, why is it there? And mm -hmm. um, and to me, uh, you know, some of my favorite games that I grew up with, you know, Shadow of the Colossus, I go Ueda games. Uh, they were big budget, big, you know, experience games but very constrained as well and elegant and uh and 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 that was their strength and so uh you know it's something that um the actually kind of got burned into me working at that game company because they do that they they do say you know what this is these are the limits these are you, you know that's a really cool thing you made but you're going to have to get rid of it because we're not going to be able to do that. You know, like mm -hmm. that was kind of their, their workflow. Mm -hmm. um, when we started giant squid, my, my thing is um, uh, I'm the guy who kind of shoots for like the bigger scope version. <laughs> and then the team kind of shoots me down. You know, I, I'm, I'm pushing the, the limit on, well, could we do something like this? You know? Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I balance that with trying to find that, core and just letting only the elements that need to be there exist. I think it's great that the team is willing to say, hey, no, creative, crazy creative director, we need to <laughs> back on this. I mean, I've, I've been in that position and it's sometimes people are intimidated. 
you know i think it's true and and that's where the culture comes in you know i I know that it can be tough to talk to me because i'm the i'm the boss man and um you know i wasn't always the boss man i i was i was in that position too so i know how it was and i want to make it so that you know acknowledge that that's always going to be the case in some way but make it so that it is possible that uh you know, the people can talk to me. You know, and and uh, if they can't talk to me, talk to someone else. And then Are there any things that you do specifically <laughs> to put people at ease and reassure them that it's okay to tell you no? You know, I just talk to people. It's it. I just, uh, I'll just, uh, you know, like I'll talk to my animator about the game design. I'll talk to my game designer about the animation. I'll talk to everybody about everything and concept artists about um, what they think about the the feel. And, um, because you know just just to make it so that you know like i i don't like even when we were in a, the same space i didn't have my own office i was just in one big room with everybody i was just trying to make it feel like i'm just another person on the team uh and you know i think that obviously there is a hierarchy and i think that the there's value to the hierarchy so that there can be direction and there can be um choices made that help limit the scope of what any one person on the team has to worry about mm-hmm. um, but at the same time uh, I'm accessible and the leads are accessible and trying to just make sure that that is clear you know is really important I agree I mean that's a great message to have where you know we're always accessible uh, it's I think that uh, for all of us as craftspeople, it is pretty easy to get so caught up that we forget that we may not, we may think we're accessible, but without reminders, most people may not be accessing us. That's true. You know, and it, it does take a, a consistent effort, you know, that you have to put in to make that happen and uh, got to do your best, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk a little bit just, just in a, the waning moments we have about being an independent developer. And what do you think is different today about being an independent developer versus, say, five years ago? Oh, yeah, this is a great question. You know, I think the the biggest thing is that there's just so many more (laughs) independent developers out there. And, you know, which is fantastic. I remember people asking me this question, you know, back when I was working on Journey. And the answer was, you know, well, it's it's amazing because there's, you know, the there's so much room for new ideas and and new people to come in and and now it's like hey everybody's made it there people are able to make video games and that's so cool you know i was always advocating for that and now a lot of there's a lot of really great tools that are free and and the question now is how do you make your game say something worthwhile um because it's not just a matter of standing out, um, which of course is super important, especially when, like you say, you go up against teams 10 times your size. You got to have something that makes you uh, com- competitive. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, the space is full of people who are doing smaller things and that allows them to do more creative things and 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 say interesting things and so i think that the the question now is what are you going to say Mm -hmm. Um, 
because uh, uh, you know the world needs some help. It needs some advice. <laughs> you know, it needs it needs some direction and some guidance and some help. And I think that video games, uh, their great power is to to make a connection with people, um, and they can say something and they can affect people. And so, um, you know, that's what we're always trying to think about. You know, what is what is worth saying? I think that is an absolutely wonderful note to conclude on. I can't think of a, a stronger statement, frankly. <laughs> uh, seriously, I, I hope that any uh, any person who is interested in getting into development or becoming a creative director can can think about those words and and answer them for themselves because it'll make our industry you know a better place and have a more positive impact on the world. Yeah, you know, I think um, when I think about the games that I grew up with, you know, they influenced who I am today, and, and as developers, you know, that's what we're making for people who are playing them as kids now you know yeah. it's going to make people who they are so. well, very cool i i if people have questions for you are you active on social media uh yes i am i mean i don't speak too much but i will respond to people and um on twitter and and uh, we've got a discord where we're kind of building our community as well around our games okay Do, what, what is your twitter handle at matt underscore nava Okay. Well, great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Really nice to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Connection without words. How a video game can be an art experience. The medium of video games is very wide. It ranges from uh, experiences of epic escapist fantasy to these mind-numbing, addictive diversions on your phone. Uh, but the video game medium can offer another kind of experience, an art experience. And uh, you might not know about this kind of game. You might know about these kinds of games, but there's another type. And they've been there all along, from the very beginning. There are these games that give you uh, a very different kind of experience. And I've worked on three games as a uh, art director and a creative director, uh, Flower, Journey and Absu. And these games have been called art games. But what is the art experience? What does art do for us? And can a video game uh, be art? Can it give you an art experience? Today I'm going to tell you about uh, the game that I worked on called Journey. This is a game uh, that uh, takes place in the desert. You are a wanderer who is journeying towards a mountain in the distance. And uh, I was the art director on this game, and I'm going to show you a little bit about what it's like.
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Journey is uh, a game that is multiplayer. You might, on your journey to the mountain, meet another player and go together. Uh, but the game started from one simple question. Can we make a multiplayer game where players form a positive connection, a bond of friendship, rather than fight each other? And everything in this game was built to allow players to form a connection despite their cultural identity. We wanted to make it so that no matter what the player's ethnicity, age, gender, or race, they could befriend each other in this game. The desert is a symbol of desolation and isolation, loneliness. And we chose the desert as a location for this journey because of that the relationship of players is highlighted. When you find another player in the desert, it becomes more meaningful. And one of the most important things to create a bond between these players was to create the right character design. And the character design was something that I worked on a long time. It went through a bunch of different iterations. And the first thing that we knew we had to do to create this connection was to remove cultural barriers. And the largest cultural barrier is language. So the first character design I did covered the mouth so that he couldn't speak. Journey has no words, no language. But the character needed a mask. We needed to take away more detail to hide the uh, ethnicity of the character. So I started to do designs like this. And I thought that it might be better if the design was more complex, if it had more detail. So I created characters with ribbons and all sorts of things. And we had a very small team, only uh, eight people at the beginning. And the programmers saw this design and they said, this is too complex. We can't animate this with our team. It's too hard. This character was in the game for one day and we took him out. But my response was, what if I try something even more complex? And uh, they, did, they weren't so happy about this. I tried to add more arms and more ribbons, and it was insane. We could not create this character. And what we found was that when we played the game with people, when they saw all these arms, they wanted to use them to punch each other, which is exactly the opposite of what we wanted the players to do, form a connection. So that what I did was, I took the arms off. That's why the character has no arms. And this worked so well that I thought, maybe I need to take more away. So I tried taking away the legs. I even tried taking away the head. All we had was a kite. And that was too much. So <laughs> we ended up with this. And this character becomes a vessel for the player. It's a character that's very easy to project yourself into because it lacks ethnicity or gender. And it made it so that players could really become a part of the game. And the desert was also very important in this regard. It's so blank and so pure that it can become an analogy for many kinds of adventures, many kinds of personal journeys. So we had this setting and we had this character 
but we needed to tell a story for these characters and these players to experience together so that they could have this bond. And we wanted to tell a universal story, one that anyone could understand and relate to. But we had no words, we had no language. So instead, we had to use color to tell our story. And this is the first version of Journey's script. It was just a sequence of colors representing moods. And I expanded on that to create uh, these sensations of light in, in the environment, this idea of the atmospheres that you would go through. And this becomes a narrative just by having a sequence of color. You have emotional lows and highs, and it becomes an adventure. Some examples from the game, you have a scene here where we use warm color to make you feel happy. You can see very far into the distance that makes you feel secure. There's also scenes where we do the opposite. It's very scary and dark and you can't see far at all. That makes the player physically scared. And as you, the players go towards this mountain in the distance, they encounter dangers. There's powerful enemies they have to avoid and environmental uh, dangers, winds and snow that they have to overcome together and they have a bond of friendship that's tested. But at the end, once you get past those trials, we reach this clear mountain sky. And I use blue as the uh, sky color here as a reward for the player. I save this color to the end just to reward the player with this bright breath of fresh air. There were scenes before in the earlier parts of the game where I could have used a blue sky, but I used green instead to save that color for the end, that blue. And at the end of the game, there's a moment where you know that once you walk past this light, it will be over. The journey will end. And one of the most powerful things we chose to do was to let players choose to walk past that point together. And we, they don't have to, they have to, they can wait and they can play with each other before they go into the light as long as they want. So by choosing to end their journey, they accept that the journey is over. They accept this journey for what it is. And it becomes a very powerful uh, narrative told without words. So we had this story, but was what we made an art experience. What is an art experience? What does art do for us? This is me when I was 11 years old, uh, drawing in a museum. And you can see the notebook that I had then. I wrote down the names of all the painters that I loved, and I was drawing this amazing ancient tablet. And this is a drawing I did just a couple years ago at the British Museum. You can see I still do the same stuff. This art has a huge impact on my life. And it was a big inspiration for Journey and other games that I've worked on. To me, the greatest thing that art can do is give us a new perspective. It can help us see the world in a new way. It can literally let us see through the eyes of another person. And 
What that does is it allows us to draw new connections, to understand our lives, our relationships in new ways. We can learn from art and it can nourish us with its experience. And when the, at a time right, right, like right now, when the desert is more a symbol of the atrocities of war and when you think of the desert, it's scary and sad, this is when we need the art experience more than ever. We look to art for this nourishment to rejuvenate us and to let us remember our connection to each other, to let us see the big picture again. The impact of Journey. When Journey shipped, it was met with critical acclaim. We won a lot of awards with this game and it was uh, an amazing experience to see that. It won five BAFTA awards. It swept the Game Developers Choice Awards, including 30 Game of the Year uh, awards from different websites and publications. But the most powerful response to the game for us as developers was the response of the fans. This is fan-created art. People were inspired to create pictures, paintings, based on this game that, and how it affected them. There's entire websites dedicated to sharing this art created completely by fans that still are being contributed today. And it shows you the power of video games as a medium to tell a powerful, powerful story. Games have this unique property of interaction that really brings people into the experience in a unique way. We heard from a teacher who incorporated Journey into their classroom as a prompt for a narrative uh, writing class with 11 and 10 year old students. And they wrote little poems based on the game as they watched one of the students play. And what they found was that a lot of the students wrote about the game in the first person, even though the game is a third person perspective. This is one of them. I opened my eyes and instantly fell back because the light was so bright. It encircled me, making the world a haze. It was like I was in a fountain of light. This was written by a 10 year old playing the game. You can see that the that these children were Im so immersed in the game that they felt the story and the environments as if they were there. But the most powerful reactions were those that we heard about in fan mail that was sent to the team. This is a excerpt from a mail that uh, we received. I'm a disabled combat veteran living, living with PTSD. This game is therapy. I feel better about my life, about the choices I've made. This is from another letter. This game has pulled me out of a, the deep depression I've been suffering from for almost five years. Another person sent us this. My father was diagnosed with cancer. Journey was the most fun I had with him since. He passed only a few months after. I believe we encountered your game at the most perfect time. I am Sophia, I am 15, 
and your game has changed, changed my life for the better. Receiving messages like this was so impactful to us. This is actually not a screenshot of the game. This is a person who has actually created the costume from Journey, wore it, and took a trip to the Sahara Desert to create this moment that affected her in the game. These people found a new perspective playing Journey. They were able to see the world in a new way and form a new connection. They were able to have an art experience by playing this game. And in that way, this video game created an art experience. So thank you. <laughs>